Axis Mundi. American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi. I am Associate Professor of Religion at Skidmore College, and I'm here with my co-host. My name is Dan Miller. I'm Associate Professor of Religion and Social Thought at Landmark College. And today our focus, uh, we're, we're calling the episode Dating Jesus. Uh, it's kind of a weird, <laughs> a weird title. And I'm going to start with a story, a little embarrassing story, about once upon a time as an undergrad and as a reminder as an undergrad, I was, you know, died in the wool, hardcore evangelical Christian. I was an evangelical undergraduate institution, and I was crushing pretty hard on this girl there. And I asked her out one time, and she said she, she shot me down. And the reason she shot me down is that right now she said, I'm dating Jesus. Now, that's going to sound weird. And you'll have stories like this too, but within the evangelical context, at, certainly at the time, that was not a weird notion. And it was, it was a euphemism for, in evangelical parlance, focusing on their relationship with God as opposed to dating. But it was also a broader euphemism for the purity movement and culture within evangelicalism. And what we want to talk about today is a little bit about that movement, but more importantly, what that movement has to tell us about evangelicals and politics and broader culture. I mean, first of all, it's hard to be mad. If someone's dating Jesus, okay, <laughs> yeah. look, I mean, th that's just like, okay, you, I mean, you can't compete with that. And you got to just say, well, I don't, you know, that's, uh, you got to leave it there. I mean, anyone who's God and human uh, simultaneously literally walks on water. I mean, you, right? yeah, that's just, <laughs> sorry, just go, just walk away. Um, more seriously, though, Dan, I think some people have heard a lot about purity culture. I think people are aware that uh, evangelicals are very into the idea of sexual purity, right? Um, but it's kind of hard sometimes to understand what that means. Like, why would someone say, like, why would say someone in college say, I'm dating Jesus? Like, what kind of, what kind of cultural mores does that, does that come from? Yeah, so the, the language of purity, right? It's, it's essentially a movement that says that one has to remain a virgin until, until marriage. And we should be really clear here. Marriage means heterosexual monogamous marriage, right? And, and we're interested today in some, some issues on gender roles as they're understood with evangelicalism. We're gonna get into some LGBTQ issues in subsequent episodes, yep. um, but this would be relevant to that as well. But the idea is that you are somehow defiled or sinful if you engage in inappropriate sexual contact, including sexual intercourse before marriage. And there's this, this whole booming industry within evangelicalism, movements like True Love Waits, the Silver Ring thing, Pure Freedom. Uh, there's a well-known book uh, by a guy named Joshua Harris called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. So there's this whole culture built up around this conception of sexual purity. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about it, and this is what interests us, and, and you're going to have a couple really useful anecdotes about this, I think, in a few minutes, is that on, on one hand, this is a movement that's supposed to be about all people. All people, men and women, are called to be sexually pure until and unless they get married, right? In which case, sex becomes okay. But these movements are also structured around really different conceptions of male sexuality and female sexuality. And this is really crucial because men or boys are, on this discourse, by nature, they're sexually aggressive. They have a voracious sexual appetite. 
They are driven by physical desire rather than emotional connection. They're essentially these, these sort of libidinous creatures that have to be controlled. Women, by nature, are sexually vulnerable. They're sort of naturally modest. They're emotionally rather than physically oriented. Chastity is kind of their essential state. And so you get a double standard, right? To be sexually, quote unquote, pure, if you're a man, means that you're going against your nature. You're fighting against your, your natural tendencies. Whereas for women, their natural state is purity and chastity and so forth. And what results in this is that when somebody fails to maintain that purity, if it's a man, that's unfortunate and that's bad. And yes, it's sin. They shouldn't have done that. But, you know, kind of what do you expect? It's, it's, it's their nature. They're going to have shortcomings. We need to be compassionate. When women fail to, to maintain purity and so forth, it means that they have violated their nature. They've gone against what they most naturally are. So there's a sense that to stick with this language of purity or defilement, their defilement or impurity is greater than that of men. And you, you've from your ministry days, have a, a great example of this, illustration of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was I was a, an evangelical youth minister for seven years, and I remember so clearly this time that we were at summer camp, and often at summer camp, uh, students would sort of renew their faith in, in evangelical language. They would say they, re, they would recommit themselves to Jesus. And oftentimes that meant that they would share things uh, that were considered sinful, that they would sort of confess things to counselors or to other people. And um, I remember so clearly uh, one counselor being um, so disturbed because one, she, she was a female counselor and she'd spoken with a young woman who was 14 or 15. And she was so disturbed because this young woman had confessed. And mind you, this is in the, uh, the late 90s, early aughts. Uh, there was really no internet then in, in, in the ways there are now, she had confessed that she had found her way to, to reading like dirty stories at night, right? That she had somehow gained access to, um, you know, what we would consider X-rated. Erotica or, kind, or, of, kind of writing. Totally, yeah. right? And what, what resulted there was this, I remember this so vividly, this conversation about the psychological stability of that woman. Now, mind you, there were so many of our boys, teenage boys from those days in our ministry, who would confess, oh, I, I, I found my dad's Playboys, or I you know, went on this nascent internet thing, and I found some dirty pictures or whatever. We never blinked. I mean, we said, hey, you know, it's great that you're confessing that, recommit your life to the Lord, repent from those sins, but you know, we're so proud of you for, for being, you know, coming clean from that. When this young woman asserted, uh, or uh, let me say, say it this way, when she admitted that she had sort of asserted her sexuality in some way, it was like, not that we were questioning her commitment to Jesus. It was like we were questioning her psychological stability. Yeah. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that as someone now who's an ex-evangelical keeps you up at night. It, it keeps you up at night feeling guilty about the kinds of ways you help to reinforce some of these standards. But I, but more importantly for our conversation today, it really sort of hits home the two conceptions of sexuality uh, uh, 
between men and women as they're envisioned in evangelical communities. Yeah, so this this young woman who comes to you is, is she's that much more of a problematic case because she's violating sort of her nature. And I was looking at in some of the, the, the materials about some of these groups, and another telling point is uh, one of these organizations that emphasizes sexual purity, they do kind of workshops for men and for women, but they have a like really different curriculum, right? The men, it's all topics about how to avoid the temptations of pornography and issues of masturbation and lust and things like that. And for the women, it involves things like the teaching of, of, and this is a quote, refusal skills, right? Their role is to protect their virginity from voracious men. The nature of voracious men is to seek to, to exercise their sexuality against women. Yeah, and this, I mean, again, so just going back to my ministry days, this this issue was clear and present when, whenever we would get to the summer and our youth group would have things like beach day or go to have a swimming party or something. There was fierce debates about what what bathing suits the girls could wear, right? Young women, junior high, high school. The debates were about, well, should we have a strict policy about girls needing to wear a shirt over their bathing suit or only wear a one-piece bathing suit, et cetera, right? And, you know, you'd always have someone say, well, we always want new kids to come, and some of these kids aren't really familiar with the church, and so we might have a 15- or 16-year-old girl who comes and, and only has a bikini to swim in. Do we really want to make her feel uncomfortable or bad about that or tell her, oh, you can't swim? And so that was kind of persuasive, but there would always be someone who would say, okay, that's great, but what's more important, allowing this new person to swim or protecting our boys from the temptation of lust? And, you know, more often than not, it was that argument that would win. The onus was placed on um, the young women to dress in a way that would not tempt uh, the, the boys into uh, lust or sexual temptation. Yeah, and I think this brings us to our point, right? Because might be listening to me like, that's great, that's interesting about evangelicals, sexual mores, whatever, but what, so what, right, if you're not in that world? But it's that point, because part of what, what we would suggest is that this double standard and this, the technical term would be sort of this gender essentialism, this notion that these, these fixed immutable genders have these, these completely different biological tendencies is, is actually reflected in broader culture, right? In a culture that, that still legitimizes predatory male sexuality and excuses male sexual assault. That on the one hand, clearly that's reflected within, I think, this evangelical ethos to some extent, right? But it also then lends religious legitimation to that ongoing cultural structuring, and it, it legitimates that culture. And, and one of the questions that we've considered, that we've been looking at, is why does it seem like evangelicals are willing to give a free pass to powerful white men who behave badly, who assault women, who commit sexual assault, and so forth? And this has been on really clear display recently, and I think that this is one of the connections. I think that conception of these fixed gender roles is a central cultural figure, and it shows this further entanglement with evangelicalism and broader, in particular, conservative and Republican culture. Yeah, I mean, this podcast is called Straight White American Jesus. We're trying to figure out and explain uh, how white evangelicals have pretty much remained Donald Trump's most vehement religious supporters. Uh, there's, I mean, one of the things that's implicit in the title is that Jesus is male. And so, you know, one of the, the the things we should say here is that somehow Donald Trump appears more like Jesus to white evangelicals than Barack Obama or uh, anyone else, really. Well, how is that so? And, and I mean, we can, we've talked about that at length for, for many episodes now. One of the things we're trying to get at today is this. 
There is a categorical understanding of men as sexually aggressive and a categorical understanding of women as sexually passive. Women are the protectors of purity. Men are those who are trying to restrain themselves in order to keep pure. So when there is something like allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, right. uh, a Supreme Court justice, there is a chance that white evangelicals, including white evangelical women, are going to see that not as a clear-cut case of Kavanaugh's um, uh, uh, unfit nature for the Supreme Court bench, but as a, a sort of uh, a new attack, a new set of lies from what might be a sexually assertive woman. Anytime there is a, a male who is the purveyor uh, or aggressor in a sexual assault, yes, that's bad. But it fits the categories, and therefore it can be forgiven. It's part of the system of sin and repentance. It fits into the, and we saw this with Kavanaugh, right? The boys will be boys logic. And this gets exactly what you're talking about, this notion, and it's, there's sort of an irony there that on the one hand, men within evangelicalism are presented as the, the sexual aggressors, and yet they're sort of somehow passive to their passions or whatever. So the role of women is to not lead into temptation. Well, I guess, for lack of a better term, the secular version of that are the questions of, well, yeah, but what did she wear? Or did she choose to be alone with him? How much had she had to drink? Did they initiate some sort of sexual encounter and then she says stop? And this notion that, well, you, you just can't expect a man to be held responsible in those circumstances, right? It's their nature to do this. So much so that you get Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council who says, and this is a quote, that, that Trump gets a mulligan for extramarital affairs, right? It's just, it's simply a double standard. And it's not just that it's a double standard, it's that it's so dangerous and pernicious. And you see it in this, also just this broader cultural backlash against the Me Too movement. Well, so I've brought this up when I'm playing devil's advocate these days with uh, some of my evangelical friends. You know, I part of the, the story I've told about on this podcast is, is not only that I was an evangelical, growing up and that I was a, an evangelical minister, but that I actually was married quite young to my high school sweetheart. Uh, we eventually got divorced and, and that's a whole nother story. We remain friends and everything's good there. But one of the, the things I bring up with my evangelical friends is it's very, it, it's very probable that if I walked into your church and I said, I'm a straight man and I'm now married to uh, a, a, a heterosexual woman, we'd like to attend your church. You wouldn't blink. And then I, even if I said, well, I just so you know, I'm divorced and I didn't get divorced for any other reason except for the fact that, you know, we dated from age 14 and, and we're married until age 24, 25 and we just grew apart. That's why you wouldn't blink. Come on in, Brad. You're, you're, in, the, you're in the fold. You can sing in the choir, or do whatever you want. If I walked in and said, well, I'm, I'm here and I'm a gay man, right? The response would be, well, if you're willing to not be gay, if you're willing to not manifest um, your, that sexual identity, then you can join. If and you're willing to be celibate, right? Those, those sort of yeah. identify that way, maybe, if you're quiet about it. But as long as you're celibate, you don't express that in any, any concrete, physical way. So wh why is that? And for me, right, what I'm trying to do with that sort of playing devil's advocate with the evangelical friend is to say, categorically, you're saying my sin of divorce is not, is not great. But it, it makes sense within the, the theological system. Whereas um, one, uh, a person who is lesbian, gay, bisexual, etc., they are categorically, they are qualitatively, right, uh, 
outside of that system. So until they're willing to come into the logic uh, of, uh, uh, of Christian sexuality, then they're excluded. They cannot be part of the group. I had a student ask me, you know, about the Duggars. I don't know if you're, uh, right. if you're familiar with the Duggars, but they're um, the, fam the reality television uh, family. I don't know how many kids there are. A uh, lot. Uh, 18, <laughs> yeah. maybe 18 kids. But, you know, one of the the, 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 the kids was um, sort of accused and proven to have sexually assaulted um, his sister. Siblings. Yeah, a number of his sisters. And was was quickly forgiven and brought back into the fold. And I had students just so angry about this. And I, and I you know, they were saying, I just... Oh, Onishi, I don't get it. How can this person be brought back into the fold so quickly? And then... All of this vitriol will be aimed at those in the LGBTQ community. And my answer was, yes, what he did was wrong. What he did from the evangelical perspective is sinful. But he's a male. He's attracted to females. He's the aggressor. And so, yes, it's not okay. But it makes sense within the system. Whereas the LGBTQ identity, any non-heterosexual identity, is not it just it is excised categorically from the from the uh, from the the, the 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 Christian sexuality and so it, by nature it is not allowed uh, and again I mean we're just trying to bring this back and I'll just throw it over to you Dan as we conclude here um, this I think helps us make sense of not only the staunch evangelical support after the Kavanaugh hearings but the ongoing support for Donald Trump who as we've named and and several times on this podcast is a uh, is an adulterer, had an affair um, with an uh, 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 um, adult performer while his uh, third wife was sort of recovering from giving birth to their son, etc. I mean, this is not somebody who seems to represent Christian sexual mores, and yet everything, every transgression he's committed makes sense within the Christian sexuality uh, system of ethics. Yeah, and so I want to make sort of two points. The first is, bring this, you know, even broader than Trump, I think it's no, no accident that then evangelicals overwhelmingly support the political party that seeks to roll back women's access to contraception, access to abortion, that basically women who want to control their own sexuality, express that freely, control their bodies, that the, the party that seems to sort of oppose that is what draws evangelicals. Um, or that white evangelicals are disproportionately represented among legislators, right? There are far more legislators who are evangelical than in the general U.S. population. So it's, it's a really widespread association. And the final point I would make, is, and it's, it's worth noting, is that we should say that these, these issues are also making really interesting conversations happen within majority yep. white evangelicalism yep. at present. There yep. is the Church Two movement that has yeah. started within evangelicalism that has really started to question mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think has really happened before. These, these categories of gender essentialism that have posed from within the evangelical community itself questions about whether or not this form of evangelical theology doesn't plant the seeds and lay the groundwork for these kinds of abuses. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to be really clear. We see that that's going on as well. As, as always, it's not a monolithic group. Yeah. But there is still this pervasive logic at work. Well, but what you're saying, what you're pointing to, and, and uh, I think we'll get to this uh, in, the, in the next two episodes, is the fact that uh, there has been pretty strong resistance to the Me Too movement in uh, white evangelical camps. However, the Me Too movement has brought to bear issues of sexual assault um, to, the, to the white evangelical church. And so we are seeing those discussions, right? That's right. However, on the whole, uh, our hope is that the, our discussion today will, will help our listeners understand not only white evangelical support uh, for someone like Trump, who is um, 
seemingly a sexual predator, not only the ongoing support for someone like Brett Kavanaugh um, after the credible accusations made um, by Dr. Ford and other women, but also the resistance of white evangelicals to something like the Me Too movement. And so, um, you know, in our mind, um, this all sadly makes sense from within the, uh, the, the kind of uh, Christian sexual ethics uh, that we've outlined today, and, and and as I think you can tell, that we've both experienced as 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 young people. Um, I think we'll leave it there, and we will go to our interview. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Brad. All right, so we are here uh, talking with uh, the Reverend Sarah Buteau. She is the pastor of the sort of storied and historic First Churches of Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. For those who don't know, it's kind of a weird name, uh, but it was a union of First Baptist Church and First uh, United Church of Christ. And so uh, first, what I, what I want to say is, is uh, I'm going to introduce Sarah. And, and Sarah, like Brad and myself, has a, a background coming from uh, an evangelical context, is now a minister in a progressive uh, church and a progressive denomination. And so I'll bounce it over, Sarah, if you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you went from evangelical as a youth to where you're at now in your ministry. Okay. Um, well, I did grow up in New York, and I just want to say that growing up as an evangelical Christian in New York is, is very different, I think, from growing up in the Bible Belt as an evangelical Christian, because I think if you grow up in the South, um, pretty much everybody you know uh, is, is is part of some sort of evangelical church. Where I grew up, I, I was in a high school of 2,000 students. Um, there were 12 Protestant students in that high school. Oh, wow. So most of my classmates were Jewish or Catholic. And what that meant was that according to um, the, the teach, that what I was being taught, most, most if not all of them were not saved. All right. So I grew up, I grew up feeling like, you know, there were, there were maybe 12 of us that, that were saved, and of those 12, I was pretty sure eight really were that into it, so we're probably the last. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I grew up feeling very much like a minority, actually, as an evangelical, which is interesting because interesting that plays into that narrative of, of evangelicals feeling like they're on the margins, even though most of them grow up in places where they are very much the majority. Right. Um, so anyway, I grew up, um, and I think in some ways that really forged my faith as something very, very strong because I had to be able to articulate why I believed what I believed. Um, and I took it really, really seriously. And I think I took it so seriously that I actually sort of um, uh, was, was hard to handle um, in, in, in my own church context because here was this young woman who was being taught to be submissive and silent. Um, and um, just kind of toe the line and hopefully grow up to get married someday. And I was, I, I, I really engaged with the ideas and I really engaged with the narrative and I took it very seriously and um, so seriously that my, um, my now brother-in-law says that the nickname for me amongst the kids was robo-Christian. <laughs> like I was just so into it and I carried my Bible everywhere. I was, when they did the C with the pole thing, um, I don't know if you know that. Yeah, I remember that. Prayer in school thing. I'm the only kid out of the flagpole <laughs> on that day at my public high school with my, my youth pastor in his, you know, beat up little Chevy, you know, on, on the, by the sidewalk, like, go Sarah, you, you can do this. <laughs> um, anyway, I, so I grow up in that context and um, I, um, 
I, I didn't get my call to ministry till I went off to college, and I'll just say that um, I ended up going to Smith College here in Northampton, which is um, a very, very progressive liberal um, college. Yeah, it's not it's not exactly an evangelical hotbed, right? <laughs> no, no. So I, when I when I got into college, the, the sort of what everybody said when, when I told them at, at church was that they would pray for me, but they were very concerned, um, especially that I would become gay. Um, <laughs> that that that's, that would happen. Um, and I think it was getting to Smith and meeting people outside of that little bubble that really opened my eyes to there being another way to do things um, and and other way to think. And you know, I'm meeting all of these uh, lesbians who don't have horns and tails, and they're wonderful people. And um, and I, I really just began to, to question things. And I think the biggest question for me growing up in my context, going to a place like Smith, was actually the question of eternal salvation and who is saved. And um, I was at a campus crusade retreat and I was um, talking about this. And I was just very concerned because it just didn't make sense to me. Because if you, like I said, if you grow up in the South, pretty much everybody you know is saved. Where I grew up, pretty much everybody I knew was going to hell. And that just didn't jive with my understanding of God. And, and, and then you grow up singing all of these praise and worship songs. Like um, uh, I was saying to Dan before, the Jesus is my boyfriend songs, God is love songs. Um, all these songs that really, really touch your heart and, and bring you into the space where God is the most loving thing you could possibly imagine. But then everybody around me is going to start, suffer eternal conscious torment because they don't believe in Jesus the way I believe in Jesus. That just didn't work for me. So I, I brought this up again at my Campus Crusade retreat, and one of the leaders took me outside, and she said, Sarah, do you know what your problem is? And I said, what's my problem? And she said, you love God. You love people more than you love God. you gotta, you got to get on the same page here, you know. God will take care of it. you just got to trust God. And if all those people are going to hell, all those people are going to hell. Just, just, just stick with God. You'll learn to love God. And so I went back to my dorm room, and I... Um, I got down on my knees and I actually, I, I renounced my salvation and I said to God, I, I can't go to heaven if it means all these people go to hell, so I'm going to hang out here on the outside. You know I love you, but I, I just cannot go to heaven on those terms, knowing that those, that many people are not going to make it, so I'm going to stay with those people. Um, and, and so I renounced my salvation. I just can't be saved if that's what it means. And that's when my call to ministry came. Wow. And my call to ministry was to go to all of those people who have been told for whatever reason that they um, are not loved, that they're not worthy, that they have a place in the heart of God. And so the next day, I, I had never seen a woman pastor. I didn't know this was a possibility. Um, I, I applied to divinity schools. And um, and it kind of took off from there. And um, when I told my pastor back home that I felt called to ministry and um, was going to go to divinity school, he, he absolutely saw that in me, and um, he, he couldn't deny that that was there. And he said, you go, but you can never come back. You know, you'll, you'll have to leave us to follow that call. But he, but he, he said, go, you go with my blessing. Um, that he, he could just see that those gifts were there, and there was no way to, to hold me back. Wow. So that's, that's a long story. <laughs> no, and it's, I mean, I, I can tell you, it's, it's a very powerful story, um, sitting here listening to it. Um, you touched on a number of, of really moving things there that would be worth sort of pursuing, but our, you know, our focus is specifically gender and, and gender roles within evangelicalism. And uh, mm -hmm. 
and you're getting into that, right? This, this notion of a kind of fixed gender differences that in terms of church practice mean that for many evangelicals, women can't be pastors. But we've also been talking about how this, this also plays out in terms of, of sexuality and, and sort of embodied identity. This relates, I think, to your experience with LGBTQ people in college and um, these very specific notions that women are one kind of sexual being and men are another. And there, there really isn't within evangelical culture a, a place for, for people that don't fit into that heterosexist binary. Um, but one of the one of the things we talked about in this episode is that there's this sense that, that men are kind of sexually aggressive by nature, women are sexually passive, and we, we suggest that this, this sort of reflects dominant culture in a lot of really problematic ways, but also impacts it. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to share, how does that play out in your ministry, your ministry, particularly with, with women who, who struggle with fitting into that model of sexuality or... Uh, this, this notion that the sort of natural role of women is to fend off men um, and the way that that can legitimate, um, you know, sort of violent actions and so on. I wonder if you, if you, do you encounter that in your ministry? Do you encounter that in particular in your ministries with, with women? Uh, um, well, I'd say I've encountered it very much in my life um, as a woman growing up in the, in the church and then, um, and then moving on and moving to the world. Um, one of the things that, became pretty clear to me as as I sort of grew out of the evangelical subculture and into the larger culture is that we absolutely, within the church, I think as a whole, need to develop um, a, a new sexual ethic, some some new way of doing things, because the whole idea of waiting till you're married to have sex in, in a culture where people don't marry until their mid to late 20s is really unrealistic, um, but also really damaging when you do things like you take teenagers and at a very young age make them covenant, make them promise and swear before God and their family and everybody they care about that they're not going to engage in sex, um, and then send them out into the world with these messages. Like that's that's the thing, that's like the most important thing that you don't break that promise. Um, how you how anybody can can make it all the way to the finish line without breaking that promise is, is almost impossible. So I saw over and over again, you know people breaking this, this this promise that they made. And it made that part made me really angry because it felt like it lacked such integrity. It was putting way too much pressure on these kids, um, myself included. Um, and also, as I watched this, I'll, I'll tell you one story about a young woman I was I was talking with who did wait until she was married to have sex and then called me about six months after she got married. And I said, how's it going? And she said she was really depressed. And, and I said, well, what do you think it is? And she said, well, I've been thinking a lot about it. And I feel like there was something really special about me before I got married. There was something almost magical, like I had this power, that there was something desirable about me because I was still a virgin and all of those things. And that, that, that was my thing. Like, I was holding on to that. And then I got married, and now, now that's gone. And it's like all, all my power is gone. I have, I have nothing. What am I anymore? I'm just a wife. And, and it made me think, you know, what, what we were doing back then, or, or is still being done, is that we fetishize virginity. We give it all of, all of this power and this, um, I don't know, this cachet that it, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then when, once that's taken away, whether it's taken away before marriage or after marriage, if, if that was the most important thing, then what's left? 
where does that leave you as as a woman? Um, and and I thought, wow, that's, it, it's such a strange place to to place so much worth yeah. uh, for a person. And so tell, I'll stop there. Yeah, tell tell me if I'm wrong about this. I mean, because you're touching on this. And we talked about this uh, earlier as well. That I think there's a real double standard in that discourse. And I feel like it's, it's there in what you're talking about, that the purity, quote unquote, purity is for both men and women. But there's a sense in which it cuts more deeply for women, right? I feel like there's this often this sense that a, a woman who doesn't make it to marriage, as you say, or in the case of this, this woman you're talking about, even after, that they're sort of, I don't know, defiled or broken in a way that is not true for men. Uh, in the same way. Am I, am I right in that, do you think? I think that's absolutely true, and I don't I don't know why that is. I don't understand how that works, but in all my years of marrying couples, I have met a few women who have made it to marriage, but I've never met a man. Oh, wow. Ever. Ever. And also, um, there was such a focus on this growing up in my youth group, and Brad, you're a youth, you were a youth pastor, so I don't know if you found yourself having to focus on this. But I felt like all we ever talked about in youth group was how we weren't supposed to be having sex. And I finally blew up one day. And I just said, could we just stop talking about it if you don't want us to do it? I mean, could we talk about something else? <laughs> <laughs> but this is all we talk about. You, you, you cram all of these teenagers into a basement, um, you know, sitting, sitting them all next to each other, and then just lecture them for 45 minutes a Sunday about not having sex. And it's like all we can think about anyway, and it's all you talk about. So... Uh, it, it just was the most bizarre, bizarre combination. <laughs> if you're serious about this, it's like, like, I don't know. Let's, let's go run a mile or something, but let's not <laughs> sit here on top of each other just talking about it all the time. Well, it is. It's funny because I, I went to an evangelical university and we had chapel three times a week. And my roommate, my first year, was actually a guy who was not really an evangelical, but he had come to the school to play baseball. And he looked at me after the first semester, you know, we we're on our way to chapel and he's, he's like, why I am so tired of going to these chapels and hearing about how I'm not supposed to have sex. Like I, I, like I'm, I really don't want to talk about this anymore. Um, and it was, it was the same thing. You know, he, he just, he didn't get it. He's like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do this, uh, in terms of, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. And it, you know, it really points to this preoccupation with that, which is prohibited in some way. Um, and that, which is, you know, that which is not allowed and, and it yeah go ahead and that preoccupation i mean when when male voices are the only voices being heard right um because the women aren't allowed to speak and that's all they're talking about um and what they're saying is that th that that sort of missionary position straight up intercourse is, is the thing you cannot do um it's that that's really interesting to me because i was thinking about this from from a female perspective that's probably the least interesting form of sex you can have. Um, and and yet, uh, amongst all of the youth I was growing up with, that was the one thing you couldn't do, but you could pretty much get away with everything else and still, on a technicality, you know, still be a virgin. Um, so I think probably all of us were sexually active to some extent, um, but we were thinking that wasn't really sex. And then you get married and you actually have sex, and it's like, oh, that was that. That's what we were waiting for, because whatever one of the things we've <laughs> no that's I mean and that's some of where you're going with that is is something we've talked about a little bit today which has been 
the idea that right yes you're supposed to you're supposed to refrain from any sort of lustful interactions and that could be that could be any number of things however it's kind of a an open secret in in church youth groups that uh, teenagers are going to somehow slip up and 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 hopefully right you don't slip up but if you do we're hoping that it's 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 you do so in a way that technically you remain a virgin and for me one of the the the, the components there is that we have a system right that that grades kind of the the severity of sexual sin and and as long as you're in that system we know how to punish you we know how to shame you we know how to forgive you and yet Mm-hmm. And this goes to some of the things you talked about when you, about your interactions uh, with with fellow students when you got to Smith is if you step outside of that system, we will we will shame you and we will sort of exclude you, but we have no means really of of um, understanding the kind of cycle of forgiveness and repentance. So if you fall out of the the system, the heterosexual system of of, of sexual sinfulness, well. It, you're just qualitatively excluded from this whole idea of kind of repentance and forgiveness. And it's not until you agree to enter into the system that, that we can understand you. And I guess for Dan and I, that is helps to explain some of the sort of ongoing evangelical support for uh, powerful men who are sexual predators um, and accused of, of sexual assault, people like Donald Trump and people like um, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, does that make sense in terms of your experience uh, in these kind of cultures and, and, and as, a, as somebody who's, who's kind of transitioned to a, a, a ministry in a different community? Yeah, because I think what it comes down to is power and control. Um, that if you can control people, you have power over them. And if you have power over them, you can control them. It's sort of this vicious cycle. And so when you when you have, like, women falling in love with women, all of a sudden, well, men have no place in that, and men aren't necessary, and that's very threatening. Um, and, you know, I, I, it, it just seems uh, like lesbianism is, like, so, it's so outside what they can control that it must be wrong. Yeah. That there just is this really intense desire to to control and um, manipulate and police, especially women's bodies, and and I think it just comes down to just that this this patriarchal need to to keep everybody in line and keep that hierarchy in line and, and keep women in their place, um, and women who don't need men at all, women who need men the way fish need a bicycle are, are probably <laughs> the most dangerous women of all. Yeah, and I. Jumping back in here, um, and this, this is Dan again, obviously. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, tying in with what Brad said, this notion of only men's voices, right, which is, I think, present within evangelicalism to an extent. But as you're indicating, I think it's also been a part of broader cultural conceptions, right, uh, which is why every time there are these accusations, there are those questions of of what she was wearing or how much she drank or whatever. And so I guess my question is, um, you know, from within your ministry context, within your context, as long as you just sort of plugged in broadly, uh, you know, culturally, what has been the effect of the Me Too movement um, as you've experienced it as a minister, as a woman, as somebody who is concerned about women's issues uh, for all women? Uh, how, what do you think has been the most notable effects of that as you've experienced it? From a, a pastoral standpoint and um, and just my own personal standpoint, I think the biggest effect has been women realizing that 
almost all of us can say me too on some level. Almost all of us have had to deal with something we shouldn't have had to deal with. And for various reasons, we've just pushed it down and moved forward. Um, and so from a pastoral standpoint, um, but the amount of pastoral care I've had to do and the stories I've been listening to from men and women, um, men confessing, women just saying, I've been carrying this and, and I, I, for so long, I don't even know what to do with it anymore. Um, so I, I think the positive effect is that the stories are coming to light so that they can be dealt with. The, the, the confessions are coming to light so they can be repented of. Um, but it's, this is, I guess, I guess it's just the pervasiveness of it. I, I, I have, I, I don't think I know any women who don't have a story to share. Wow. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> one of the things I think some of our listeners might be wondering, you know, and if we have listeners out there who are uh, not Christians, who have wondered for a long time, why do I have to, every time I think about politics in my country, confront an evangelical, uh, usually a white evangelical. And then more broadly, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Christian person. Maybe I'm not a religious person. Maybe I am. But every time I have to sort of reckon with my own culture, I have to deal with usually uh, Protestants and, and Christians in general. Um, so there may, may be those folks out there. There's also those folks out there who, who, who are likely on the margins of evangelicalism and sort of wondering um, about its, you know, tenability for their own lives. And I guess one question I'd love to ask for those folks out there is, uh, what are the resources from your view, Sarah, in the Christian tradition for uh, a healthy and, and vibrant and progressive sexual ethic? You know, like, can you tell us a story about how Christianity is not just about sexual repression and sexual um, uh, kind of patriarchal um, systems? Uh, you know, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Well. This is going to sound really ironic, um, but I think scripture. I think if you go back at scripture and look at it, um, not not through the lens you were raised in, but, but through a different lens, um, you begin to see that, wow, this is a lot more egalitarian than hierarchical. I mean, we're, we're taught, we, most of us growing up in a tradition, we're taught that, you know, women submit to men and men are the head of the household and all that stuff. When you go back to those verses, um, especially in the epistles, um, you see that that what they're doing, they're, 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 the, the whole patriarchy was the system of the day. And they're saying, you know, wives, wives submit to your husbands or slaves submit to your masters. Um, but they're saying, do it freely. And, 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 um, and then husbands, you, su- you submit to your wives. You love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Um, you uh, remember that you... Um, you have a master in heaven when you're dealing with your slaves, and and it's this it's this profound way of turning this patriarchal hierarchical system on its head, um, and saying that we we all need to submit to one another in Christ. There is no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. That we are whether we are masters or slaves, husbands or wives, we are all to basically give our lives for one another, and. And that's right there. And somehow, somehow, Christianity for, for eons has just held on to the idea that, oh, okay, well, we're just going to keep doing it the way it was always done, and men are in charge, and masters are in charge. But that's not what those verses are saying at all. They're, they're, saying, they're saying the exact opposite, actually. It's, it's not about who's in charge. It's about how you can use all of your power to serve one another 
whether and 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 that empowers women and that empowers the place and that empowers anybody on the underside to say, oh, I am a human being. I'm made in the image of God. I have I have dignity, and I have agency, and I can use that agency to willingly be kind, to willingly um, be helpful, to willingly be part of the system. So I think scripture is a great resource, and there are wonderful writers out there, people like Rachel Held Evans. Um, who I would recommend, you know, go get her latest book, Inspired, and and read through that, um, uh, Sarah Bessie. There, there's, there's a lot of wonderful people right now doing this work um, who take Scripture very seriously, and, and I think those answers are right right there. They're right there. Good. Well, Sarah, I think um, I think we're going to wind it down. Um, I want to thank you for your time uh, and, and for a different perspective, right? Um, somebody who is is in this world and and doing this and is not just the ivory ivory tower academic like uh like my friend brad and i um i I also will say i I feel like growing up with an evangelicalism i didn't really outside of catholicism i didn't have a view that there were other kinds of christians really and as so far as they came into view at all it meant that they weren't really christians right they didn't really believe things and so on and so I, I just want to, I feel like you're giving us a, a fresh perspective for some of our listeners who may not know that, right? When they look at the American religious landscape, it, they can get a pretty sort of um, limited view of what that entails. And so I really want to thank you for giving us a, a very different kind of perspective uh, and, and sharing so freely with your experiences. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And I guess I guess as, as we're reflecting on this, I just say that I think that's the importance of having other voices interpreting scripture, um, having female voices, having GLBTQ voices, having um, voices across diff- the, the racial spectrum. Um, if, if you just are hearing white, heterosexual, cisgender men interpreting scripture, you're going to you're going to get a particular read on it. Right. But when you bring other voices into it. I think that's when scripture really comes alive. And I don't think we have to be afraid of scripture. I think it has beautiful things, but it takes multiple voices and multiple multiple eyes and interpretations to, to really bring it to life. So I would encourage you, if you're out there thinking that it's it's there's no place for you in the church or it's time to walk away, find some of those other voices. There, there are other churches and other voices, and, and there is a home for you. So I, I hope you find it. Well, and that's, I mean, that's a great uh, piece of insight. And it leads me back to the very first thing Dan said. And uh, Dan mentioned that you are uh, uh, in ministry at a historic church in Northampton, but we never really got the story of what makes it historic. So just on on that last note, would you mind just sort of closing with telling us a little bit about the history of your church and and how it's, 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 it's pretty, um, it's pretty wonderful that you get to be in ministry there? It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, my church is over 350 years old. Um, I believe our first pastor was Solomon Stoddard, who um, was kind of blacklisted by the other Protestant ministers in, the, in, in Massachusetts because he believed um, in, in a more open communion table and welcoming more people to the table. Um, that got reversed by his son-in-law, I believe, who was Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the instigators of the Great Awakening in New England and probably the foremost intellectual uh, of that time. And, and that's probably what most people would associate with First Churches is Jonathan Edwards. But we've been, we've been in this church and we've been um, believing that there is more light and truth to bring forth from the Word of God for 350 years. And that has brought us to a very, very progressive place. So progressive that 
if you cross the street to get to our church, you're going to cross over a rainbow crosswalk, um, which is a tribute to the GLBT community. Um, and um, we're, a, we're a very progressive con- congregation now. I don't know what Jonathan Edwards make of us, um, but I think we're actually very true to his legacy because we really are um, mining scripture, continuing to go back to it, seeing it as, as a living word, and um, using it to minister to the people in our community and in our midst. That's a little bit about who we are. I just love that story because I, I mean, I, I, I no longer identify as a, as a Christian person, but I, when I think of your community, I, I, I love it. It makes my, makes me smile every time. Cause I just love the idea that Jonathan Edwards, most famous sermon is uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And now uh, if one wants to enter your church, they, uh, they, they cross the rainbow sidewalk um, and they are greeted by uh, a female minister. To me, that is wonderful. Yes. So, uh, Sarah, thank you so much. I just want to say, there's two pastors, a man and a woman, and we are co-pastors. We're not senior and associate. We, we, share, we share the ministry equally. No, that's, yeah, that's great. Um, thank you so much for your time, Sarah. We, we're truly grateful. Um, and um, we just appreciate all of your, all your insight. Thanks for listening today, y'all. As a reminder, you can help us keep doing this pro-democracy work by becoming a paid subscriber. Get ad-free listening, access to the 500-episode archive, a premium episode, and more. Go sign up now. It only takes a few clicks. www.axismundi.supercast.com. The link is in the show notes.